Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is a fourth episode of Our Voices, intended to give you an inside view of my guests' life journeys and what's shaped who they are today. And we'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I invite you to listen with curiosity and without judgment and gain empathetic understanding of people you might not otherwise encounter. I hope that you'll gain a deeper appreciation for the widely differing experiences of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. And perhaps in unexpected ways, you'll also see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace that we're more similar than not. My guest today is Elijah Hayward III, an inspiring example of being true to oneself. A young person who's integrated his studies and interests in art, music, religion, history, education, and culture. His journey started in the South, growing up in Beaufort, just outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Early in his studies, he was drawn to research on the African-American experience since emancipation, and after his bachelor's degree, earned a master's in religion at Yale Divinity School, and was named a Yale President Public Service Fellow. In 2018, Elijah was awarded his doctorate by UNC Chapel Hill with his dissertation, Research on Gullah and Geechee, Identity in the 21st Century, which we will learn about. And then he started his role as the Chief Operating Officer of the International African American Museum to be opened in early 2022. Elijah, I am delighted that you're joining me on this episode of Our Voices and Say It Skillfully. Welcome. Molly, it's, a, it's really an honor to have an opportunity to join you for uh, this conversation and uh, to be a part of your show. Um, I'm really excited about our conversation and more so inspired by the work you do. So thank you for having me. It's a, it's a delight and, and I'm very excited about our little chat. So uh, to start, let, uh, let us help listeners get to know you. Would you please tell us uh, about you? For sure. You know, um, You've really done a wonderful job um, offering a bit of context, so I'm not really sure what more I can offer. Um, thank you again for such uh, an amazing welcome and introduction. I'm from Beaufort, South Carolina, which is on the coast of uh, South Carolina, um, an hour and a half south of Charleston, 45 minutes north of Savannah, Georgia. And my hometown is comprised of about 60 islands which as you might imagine for a young person is pretty remarkable because my childhood was defined by waterways, rivers, beaches, and all the things that come with them. Um, I had an amazing family. Um, both sides of my family are based in Beaufort and they really created an exceptional experience for me as a young person because I was raised by a community of people who all had a role in contributing to not only my success, but the success of all the young people in our community. And uh, there's just really something really uh, majestic about having um, such a magical place built, filled with nature, filled with love, filled with people 
who all really uh, have some interest in helping you to become the full, fullest manifestation of yourself and allowing your dreams and desires and hopes to, to become a reality. Um, so for, for many reasons, uh, you know, I really um, credit my community with uh, so many of, of the advantages and opportunities I've had throughout my life but more so really credit them with the inspiration for the work that I continue to do to this day. Well, let's unpack this a bit. So I, I know you're so fond of growing up in the South. And for those of us who don't have um, the experience with that, perhaps before we get into some of the academic decisions and opportunities you had, share a bit about that. And, you know, as you look back, was it all, you know, fabulous um do you in, in reflection do you think about times that may have been tougher or defining moments at all you know i think i think that uh you know one uh thing to really hold in tension is that there is this uh perception of southern identity that has widely been shaped by popular culture and in many respects uh that perception Rings true, um, you know, th there is a weather that it tends to be a little bit warmer. Um, there's a sense of hospitality that really colors many interactions. And there's a pace of life um, really informed by intentionality um, that really allows for there to be a really amazing approach to community and connection. Um, but I would say that for me, um, my, my lived experience in the South is one that I'm, I'm quite proud of because of the family ties and the history that I was surrounded by. The complexity comes in in the fact that, you know, in many respects, that history is one that did not always privilege the African-American experience in a positive way. Um, it's really interesting because um, there's a a, form, a famous speech uh, that Barbara Jordan gives uh, during the Nixon impeachment hearings. She talks about we the people and the fact that when, when uh, that phrase was written, a phrase that has come to be so uh, clear to Americans as a part of our, our rhetoric, that she wasn't included as a woman or an African-American. And in many regards, um, looking around you know, parts of the South, there are reminders of a period of time in which me and my family weren't really included in the discourse because we were seen as property and not so much as citizens with full rights. So the tension, I think, comes in the fact that there's amazing beauty, there's amazing diversity of community uh, that raised me, that I continue to cherish to this day. But they're also reminders of the fact that despite this beauty, despite this heritage that I and so many are proud of, uh, there is a complexity of the fact that African-Americans within this frame weren't always fully respected or given the same rights. And I think that's a tension that my parents were very clear to make very, um, very apparent to me um, growing up to understand the, the rights that we have um, as Americans that so many fought hard for African-Americans to have. And my responsibility to ensuring that justice and equality continue to be things that people are able to enjoy. So, you know, for me, um, when I think of the South, I think of my family, I think about, you know, the amazing food ways, particularly in the Gullah Geechee tradition that continue to shape so much of my life. I think of the history, um, the history of, of African-Americans in particular who have contributed to communities like my own in the world by virtue of 
what they're able to do despite limitations. But it's also um, important to consider and remember the fact that so much of the Southern experience is one that is, is ripe with uh, tension and justice, um, parts of history that were not the best for, for African-Americans and many other minority groups. And, you know, hope, hope that people like my great grandparents and grandparents had that we would someday have a better future that we're currently uh, living through in, in many different ways. You are, um, you know, from the moment we first had our chat, I've just been taken by how articulate, how grounded, how you seem to be able to look at it from an outside in. Because um, it, it's an emotional topic, you know, rightfully so for many, and it's not easy to, I think, be outside in on it. Do you recall early days of seeing things that you knew weren't right? I'm just, I'm just, I'm curious how you process that as a young person. I mean, I've had previous guests on the show, and you know, it was really, it was really rough life for them. It was not a pretty picture, um, and they got through it. You know, they realized it helped make them who they are. I'm just curious about your own experience. You know, Molly, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think the human condition is one that is defined by overcoming adversity. Um, you know, I think none of us can say that life is, is easy per se. Um, I'll, I'll just say that um, there were many instances where I felt like I had a greater appreciation for my life because I had a very clear understanding of the sacrifice that it took for me to enjoy whatever experiences I had um, growing up. Um, you know, I think my parents are very intentional about ensuring that we had a very inter intergenerational upbringing defined by grandparents, aunts, uncles, and all the above. So I like to say that, you know, for me, um, my elders were my contemporaries. You know, they raised me. So my grandmother and grandfathers, sisters and brothers, and even their, um, their, their, their elders were a big part of my upbringing. So from an early age, I understood um, the value of the right to vote, for example, because I understood that for generations that wasn't something that was available. I understood the, the, the privilege of being able to shop on Main Street or to you know, use a water fountain, all these things that in the South weren't rights that African-Americans had. So I had a very clear understanding of history and the role of the sacrifices that people had to make to allow for you know, my generation to enjoy privileges. Um, and there's a way in which I was always taught that nothing would be impossible through hard work, through faith, and through the sheer will to pursue our dreams, because you know, if I, I think I think it was very clear that you know, if my grandparents' generation or the generation before them could endure what they endured to you know achieve a sense of equality, you know, my generation has so much more uh, that we could achieve in light of that. And I think that was something that always gave me inspiration, particularly given the notion that history for me um, was something that I, I I got a great deal of. Um, of, uh, of, of courage and inspiration from. My father uh, was a history teacher, an entrepreneur, and uh, he was someone that constantly shared narratives and stories of triumph and, and achievement that really inspired me to dream big in a, in a particular way. Um, so I, I would say that 
you know, there was this, this sense of, uh, of uh, determination <clears throat> that defined so much of my, um, my upbringing that was built on the fact that, you know, there's a choice that we had to make as a community of whether to allow for the constraints to become polarized, not polarizing, to become paralyzing, or would we allow them to be the fuel that we would, would, would have to, to persevere and uh, despite the odds achieve great things. And, you know, for, for my family, it was, it was the latter. Um, that doesn't negate the fact that there were situations that arose that, you know, were challenging. Um, and I would say as a child, you don't really fully process things in a particular way until you have the sophistication to really understand the dynamics of, of why things are the way they are. Um, this could be anything from racial profiling to, to just, you know, really um, understand the dynamics of how history continues to impact the economic outlook for, 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 for my community in particular. But I would say for the most part, you know, there had to be a decision made about how we would live and how we would use history and sacrifices from, future, from past generations to be the fuel forward to really, you know, work to fight and maintain a level of justice that had been so, so hard won by those before us. What a gift that your parents bestowed on you for that uh, can-do optimism with realism. And I don't think, I think that's a tough line for parents. You want the best for your kids and to be able to impart upon you, you know, the appreciation for what's before you without feeling like you, you're tied down by it. Exactly. Um, I'd love to meet your parents. That's really wonderful. No, no, it would be great to introduce you. They, they are the two best people that I know. So it would be great to have you meet them one day. Yeah, and it takes a village. Boy, if I'm hearing anything, um, it really does take a village. It Getting does. In- I mean, and I'll just say this. I mean, I think that's, a, that's an adage that is used. Um, but I am living proof of that because, Molly, as you might imagine, this, and this is true for many you know, ethnic groups in America, but, you know, I had parents, I had amazing grandparents, aunts, uncles, but literally there are so many people who, who played a role in raising me. I was thinking just today about the fact that, you know, this is around the time where I would be going back to college. And before I would leave, my, my pastor would call me up and everyone would kind of circle and pray over me, but I would also be summoned to everyone's homes. So people in the community would say, stop by, I want to see you. And that means that you have to go by there, spend time, and they would give you either some food or likely gas money for the journey. And those are moments that I still cherish to this day because in those moments you get wisdom, you get a word of encouragement, you get the hope of a community that cannot travel with you, that may not have been able to go to college, but with you, their hopes and dreams are being fulfilled each day. So there's a way in which I always appreciate the contributions of the elders and all the folks who raised me because, you know, I would not be here without them. And so much of my community ethic is really rooted in that understanding and that appreciation of what this common shared benefit of of really supporting one another is really about. That is so beautiful. When when you um, out in the world, you know, meet folks who don't have you know, perhaps what the, what you're saying, he sounds so idyllic and they don't have it. And I'm just wondering how, you know, 
how those conversations go and how you perhaps impart some inspiration for folks who may not feel like anybody is in their camp? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and, and I'll say idyllic is a, is a great word, but and by no means am I arguing that, you know, was a perfect uh, place because, you know, perfection, as you both know, is not, is not, it's not real. Um, but I'll say this. Um, I, I come from an abundance model. You know, my, my father always says that there is enough success out there for everyone. And, you know, I was raised to believe that we get, we get further along as a society, helping one another, supporting one another's dreams, and being engaged in this mutual effort of really making the world a better place through our passions. And so for me, that means, you know, modeling the values I was raised with, which is generosity, hospitality, and really being of service in any, in any way possible, um, which I think is a bit of a contradiction because I think in many instances, our society functions from a deficit model, meaning that there's scarcity, not abundance, and that there's only a little bit of success, and we have to do our best to protect that at all costs. So I think for me, I'm often met with skepticism, particularly from folks who haven't had an opportunity to, you know, um, have, you know, the, the same type of community experience that I've had. So I think that it's allowed for me to have stronger bonds with people who understand that background. And uh, for those who don't, um, it's an opportunity to, to just have a, a greater sense of understanding. Because I would say that Molly, I think the, the blessing of life is meeting people who have different experiences than you, learning from them, and you know, having the opportunity to engage in a way that makes each individual that much more better and informed about the human condition by virtue of that interaction. So, you know, it's, it's always a fascinating exercise to engage in that type of, uh, type of growth. And that, that goes both ways. But uh, it, it is something that is fascinating at times, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, your wisdom is so far beyond your years. I'm, I'm very humbled, to say the very least. Uh, let's very segue. And, and by the way, at the end of the show, we'll talk about some of those conversations that I think would be great to role model when folks do ask you and put you on the spot that this could, can't possibly be the way it is. I'd love to hear kind of how you respond. Um, academically, a fascinating journey. So share with us the choices you made, you know, you undergrad, you, you went all the way through. I mean, scholarly, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate know. that. You know, I, I, I think that uh, I've always believed that education is a great equalizer. Um, you know, no matter where you come from, the beauty of America is that there is a right to free education, and that can be leveraged in ways to really transform our futures as, as willing agents <laughs> that want to pursue it. Um, in high school, I worked really hard. Um, I played sports. I, I did a lot of volunteering. I did everything I could to distinguish myself to be in a position to have options for college. And um, I really was looking at a particular path, uh, likely an Ivy League institution, for college. But uh, my childhood dream was to attend an HBCU. My parents are both raised, oh, I'm sorry, my parents both attended South Carolina State University. And I was thereby raised on that campus because I was a toddler uh, when they were in school. And there's a way in which that early experience on the HBCU campus has always stayed with me. 
it gave me a thirst for knowledge. It gave me um, a, a desire to benefit from that type of community ethic. Um, you know, as you might imagine, while my parents were in school, I was being babysat by my aunt who also attended, at, who worked in the dorm. And, uh, you know, professors would allow my mom to bring me to class. So there's a way in which they had a, a commitment to ensuring that there was a success model in place for students like my parents who had children. And to me, that always stuck with me, even though I didn't really have the vocabulary to understand what that meant. Um, so Hampton University became a leading option for me by virtue of that early experience and also desire to really be a part of a tradition, um, one that's greater than myself. Um, Historically, black colleges and universities were, at, at a time in our nation's history, the only option for African-Americans to attain higher education. And since then, they have really maintained an historic um, commitment to, to education at the highest level, to community at the highest level, to service, uh, to really honoring something that I always wanted to help to preserve and cherish. Um, for me, there's a, a pretty profound connection between my hometown and Buford in Hampton, and uh, in, in, in that the Penn School, uh, which was founded during the Civil War, um, had a strong connection to Hampton Institute at the time. And so there's this legacy that I was a part of that became even more clear when I became a student that spent a great deal of time in the archives at Hampton. So uh, Hampton was really a phenomenal experience. I was a history major there, leadership studies minor. Um, became really engaged in all facets of the university, particularly in the archives and the, the museum, and really uh, leveraging this opportunity to, to really pursue my education. And I'll say that, you know, years later, um, I spoke to my mom about attending Hampton, and she was pretty adamant about me attending an HBCU. I was, you know, open, you know, when I was uh, in high school, but, you know, decided upon an HBCU, but she was pretty clear about that choice. So I asked her, I said, you know, why, why Hampton? Why, why an HBCU? And she said, well, you know, your entire life, you've worked really hard. You've had to really, uh, you know, navigate, you know, education um, in particular ways. And as your parent, I was really excited for you to have an opportunity to just be Elijah the student. Um, there's a way in which, you know, growing up in my hometown, I was uh, in the IB program, AP classes. Um, in many instances, I was the only African-American in some of my classes. And um, my mom and, and my mother and father, rather, they, they understood the dynamics and pressures at play at times that, that really, um, how, and how that impacted me. And yeah, I think for them, being in, a, in an environment like an HBCU where you know, I'm with the, the brightest minds in the country that just happen to be African-American. And all of us are, are navigating, you know, our, our academic journey without having the extra layer of all of the politics of, uh, you know, racial tensions and profiling that come into play at times was something that she felt would like would be a very important grounding force for me. And one that I can say was, was deeply affirming at a very critical time in my, in my life and development. So Hampton was a, a phenomenal experience. Um, I, I still remain engaged there and still credit them with so much of uh, who I am. Um, after Hampton, I attended uh, Divinity School at Yale and I uh, received a master's in religion. And um, you know, at the time, um, it was an, an interesting choice because 
um, law school was really where I saw myself headed. But uh, I decided to take a detour and attend divinity school. And it was a really phenomenal experience because I think that so much of my identity was defined by faith, or is defined by faith, rather. And it was great to be in a setting where I could really tease that out in a really uh, meaningful way. Um, you know, unlike a lot of my peers, I wasn't looking to become a pastor or even an academic at the time. Um, I was just on this passion uh, pursuit to really, you know, allow for this journey to unfold organically. And I had, didn't have a real end in sight. Um, and uh, what I found, though, is I walked away with this, uh, this approach to social justice that's rooted in my, that's rooted in my faith. Um, there's a thing that I like to term public social witness, you know, kind of how we act out our values in the public sphere. And for me, uh, that really related to justice, the same justice work that I referenced to my grandparents and, and great grandparents, who I knew sacrificed a great deal for me to enjoy the advantages of, of, of this contemporary age. And so, you know, through my experience in divinity school, I sat at, 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 the, at the feet of, of so many great scholars and practitioners who were committed to justice from a particular framework. And I received that framework through, through faith to really look at organizing, to look at ways in which uh, faith communities have played a role in the fight for equality. Um, but for me, it was an opportunity to really explore so many dimensions of, of outreach in a particular way um, through the arts, uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote plays, uh, I produced them, I, I performed in them, um, but I also started a, 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 a program, an educational program that allowed for me to take uh, what I was learning in the classroom and apply it to the New Haven community while I, was, while I was in school to really make sense of a lot of the things I was wrestling with as far as the difference I was hoping to make. And uh, that became a really uh, impactful experience for me because it was one rooted in service, but also one that defined the next phase of my life in the nationwide college access program that I started called the Youth Scholar Academy um, under the auspices of the Institute for Responsible Citizenship in Washington, D.C. Um, so, you know, there's a way that, you know, I, I, I really got what I came for without even knowing it in the sense that this journey through Yale Divinity School provided me with access points to understanding how we all can be change agents. And for me, education, the very thing that so defined um, my early life, became the thing that I wanted to, to use to offer as a, as a sense of service to, to generations coming behind me. Amazing. You wrote plays. <laughs> like, what don't you do, my friend? Um, <laughs> your doctoral work um so you know i guess the once you get on this academic track i know you weren't trying to be an academic but i i am you know i'm curious if, if that is just the you know lots of the folks in the phd world that i know are, there's a lot of theory you know and it was just fantastic and the concepts and the learning you have this insanely practical side as well um so I'm I'm wondering your your experience getting the PhD and and then take us to the the current state. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that um, I I was raised to pursue passion. It's why I attended divinity school. It's why I was a history major and not um, 
a finance major, um, you know, I was, I was always raised to do the things that bring you joy that you're interested in. So for me, um, you know, I reached a point where the program that I started was uh, doing pretty well. And I considered what I wanted life to be, you know, maybe a decade or two down the line. And I considered the type of impact I wanted to make. And uh, the impact was one that had a pretty consistent narrative um, in the cultural context, but also had the flexibility to, uh, you know, traverse other industries as well. And I realized that, you know, following my passion and thirst for knowledge would serve me well, whatever I decided to do down the line. So uh, pursuing a PhD in American studies at UNC Chapel Hill became uh, an amazing opportunity and one that I, I truly um, appreciated. For one, um, it brought me back to this Southern experience that we started out talking about. Um, the South is such a, a diverse place, but not always recognized as such. And it was very clear to me as a proud Southerner that my narrative is not always at the forefront as an African-American, but also as a Gullah Geechee native. And I wanted to be a part of transforming that. I mean, uh, so much of my research in, in, uh, in the field of Gullah Geechee studies was defined by authors who did not come from my community. So as you might suspect, Molly, uh, you know, it, it feels a little interesting to have other people tell you who you are. Um, not, to, not to discredit their, their value in, in being able to do that, but for me, it's important to have voices from the communities that we seek to study and, ex and understand be a part of the, of the discourse. So for me, um, you know, an opportunity to be a part of uh, discourses related to my, not only my own identity as a Southerner, but particularly an African-American with a very specific cultural heritage was really important to me, but also to leverage that in a way that could inform and help to sustain cultural institutions was also equally important to me. Uh, so UNC uh, became an option by virtue of uh, their Center for the Study of the American South. Uh, the, the Penn School papers are, are, are based there. And uh, there's just a, an amazing legacy of engaged scholarship that I wanted to be a part of. And I'll say that my time there was phenomenal. Um, not only was I able to do work on documentary films and, you know, become more engaged in the practice of photography and art and curation um, and work with some of the best scholars that are out there, I was able to further define a form of engagement and even activism that aligned with my values as someone that really is committed to not only preserving history, but promoting arts in a way that can connect with people from all backgrounds. So this is, this is amazing for listeners and for myself. Say more at the Gullah and Geechee. How do we think about that? Um, you know, give us some descriptors. How do we position that for, um, for those of us who aren't uh, in the scholarly world that you are, my friend? Well, I'll say this. I mean, this is definitely uh, something that uh, is not, uh, I guess, uh, germane to the scholarly world. Um, you know, I, I would hope that, you know, this would be pretty accessible. Um, it, it's interesting because um, when I was in elementary school every year, the Dars of the Revolution would have an essay contest. And the prompt was always the same, coming to America. 
And, you know, you would have uh, these narratives that would be written by my classmates about their ancestors and how they got here. And in many instances, these were narratives that were based on agency. The fact that they decided to come or chose to come and had this opportunity to come. And so every year, um, I wrote about slavery and, and, and African captives. And it was interesting because I was the only student in the class <laughs> that decided to write about this, which speaks to my parents' you know, influence and in really ensuring that my sister and I had a very um, sound understanding of who we are and where we came from. But there was this understanding that, you know, there was this, uh, this, this very, very harsh, very um, brutal, very undesirable um, path to America that's a part of my lineage. Um, what makes it even more fascinating is growing up in a place where that lineage is still very apparent and real and true. So, for example, in my hometown of Beaufort, the very plantations where my ancestors were enslaved are still here. Now, they are not functioning as plantations, but the land is here. So there's this, there's this lineage that, you know, continues to shape the, 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 uh, the landscape, the economic discourse and culture, and so much of the history that surrounds me in my community. And so uh, there's really a, a really fascinating uh, weight and tension there that's always ever present. Um, what's, what's dynamic about that though, is the fact that Gullah Geechee people are African-Americans who have retained resonances of African identity longer than any other group in America because of the fact that the very um, you know, plantations and places where African-Americans settled in the region of, we'll say from North, the coast of North Carolina to the tip of Florida, were on the coast, and many were barrier islands where they were in the majority. So that means that traditions such as foodways, spirituality, uh, ways of doing community, um, around, you know, ties around people who weren't related that became family, fictive kin, were able to be sustained through generations, which allowed for there to be a very specific cultural identity called Gullah Geechee that continues to have an impact today. So, you know, uh, there's a really um, interesting way in which through this crucible of the period of enslavement, you have this, this uh, adaptive functioning of community called Gullah Geechee that emerged that allowed for African-Americans to make sense of something that was really unexplainable that was being imposed upon them, but has resulted in a, a practice of family, of art, of spirituality, of all of the above that continues to be something that defines my life for the better. Um, so in sum, Gullah Geechee is a cultural identity Gullah is a language, a dialect. Um, it's also a way that so many African-Americans from the coast define themselves as a sense of pride. I mean, there was a period of time where it was pejorative to be called Gullah because there was a thick dialect that, that was accompanied with it. And there's a, a way of seeing it as a backwards, you know, form of being 
that would that made you an outcast from mainstream America. Um, you know, there's a connection to the plantation even that, that made people not really feel a sense of pride as they do today. But, you know, more contemporary generations like my own have reclaimed it as a sense of pride to say, no, this is a connection to not only our heritage, but to our roots in Africa, particularly West Africa, that continue to be very much so um, a big part of who we are in a really exciting way. Um, so. Thank you. Thank you. I am uh, grateful for this learning and so heartened to, to when you get to the understanding and you can um, make the choice of, 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 of knowing this with pride and carrying it forward as a, a strength, it's, it's fantastic. And, uh, yeah, and I say, Ma, I think that's really, really beautiful because I think that our country is defined by diversity. And every ethnic group has very uh, fascinating um, parts of it that cannot be seen as a monolith. And I think that, you know, at times African-Americans are seen as a monolithic, you know, group of people. But one reason why I champion my cultural heritage is that it reminds us that there's so many ways to be American. And African-Americans have so many uh, ways of being informed by our diverse backgrounds that I think is really rich and beautiful and, and, and dynamic. Yeah, that is so wonderful. It's the perfect segue. You're in, it seems to me, like the perfect role. So share with us what you're working on. And I, will, I want all our listeners to know about it. And hopefully when, when we can visit and it's open, uh, we can see it for our own self. Well, well thank you, Molly. Um, you know, I, I have the honor of serving as the Chief Operating Officer of the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. We are currently under construction and will open in early 2022. You know, it's, it's really powerful because uh, Charleston is really a special city. Uh, Charleston has been recognized time and time again as the number one city in the country and even the world by Travel and Leisure Magazine. There is a very robust tourist industry one that's informed by the food and, and, and the hospitality and all these things. One opportunity though that we have is to continue to transform that understanding through a greater appreciation for the African-American experience in America through the lens of Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston was the single greatest point of entry for African captives in the country. 48.1% of all enslaved Africans that came to America came through Charleston. And there's a way in which that makes it a very profound city um, in that, you know, we argue that every African-American can trace at least one relative to Charleston as a point of entry. So whereas many Americans see Ellis Island as this great place to connect them with their ancestors, and I would say in a positive frame, our frame is not as positive, but it is one that is meaningful because the site of our museum, the former Gasson's Wharf, is a point of pilgrimage that we hope that many Americans, but particularly African-Americans, will appreciate, given the nature of having a sacred place where so many uh, of our ancestors took their first steps in this, in this country. Um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating because Charleston was a site of the first Memorial Day by, uh, by African-Americans. Uh, the Civil War started in Charleston at Fort Sumter. There are all these ways in which American history is tied into this, this place. And our museum is meant to honor 
this really profound history, but do it from the perspective of the African-American experience. You know, we, we, we have uh, a commitment to honoring the untold stories of the African-American journey at one of our country's most sacred sites. That journey is one that started beyond America and Africa. You know, I think it's argued that one of the, the wealthiest men in, in, in history was, was, was of African descent, you know, predating slavery. Uh, you know, there's so many artistic outputs and, and uh, cultural assets that originate in this amazing continent comprised of so many countries and traditions that we want to celebrate and honor. But also honor the fact that so much was robbed through the slave trade, where people were taken against their will and brought to a country where they had to reimagine their existence and their future and their present. So we talk about that journey originating in Africa, the touch point in Charleston, and then the fact that by virtue of this touch point, the world was forever changed by virtue of the African-American journey that continues to be a, a profound one in America and beyond. So our museum is a museum itself, uh, you know, about 40,000 square feet of exhibition space, including 3,000 square feet for a changing uh, gallery um, that will bring in shows and originate shows of our own um, based on expanding this, this very mission that I just shared. We have an African Ancestors Memorial Garden honoring the sacred site where so many of our ancestors took their first steps, a place of contemplation, um, a place to really look out and see the pathways of slave ships and really resonate with the fact that our site is a site where people died, where people came, and now a place that we want to reclaim as a place of healing. But also we have a center for family history, which I think connects the dots because so many uh, African-Americans have a challenge of doing genealogy by virtue of the slave trade. Um, so we want to break through that for all Americans, but particularly for Americans of African descent, to allow for there to be a tangible way to take the, the meaning of the gardens, the learning from the exhibits, to really make it true to who you are, to see all the history that we share through the lens of your own family lineage, which I think is really important and key to just sustaining our future. I mean, there's so much happening in our world today around um, equity, justice, you know, understanding each other. And, you know, there's so many solutions that have been um, explored for this. For me, education remains on the top of my list and our list as an institution, because in understanding the full complexity of the African-American journey and experience, the highs, the lows, the beauty, but also the, the unvarnished truths that we have to wrestle with as a society, the goal is that we are able to walk a path that's more positive in the future based on empathy, understanding, and also an appreciation for justice and why it should be protected at all costs. What an important and needed addition to our landscape. Um, before I move forward, one question, and my mic cut out so others may have heard it. What percentage of the slaves came through Charleston? Approximately 48.1%. Wow, almost half. So I hear you on the education, and I'd like for you to share with listeners, you know, what are, what are some, some things that you'd have them do to help get themselves and those they care about around them 
um, more informed, educated. Appreciate any advice you'd have for them. Well, you know, as I tell my friends, I don't give advice, but I'm happy to offer um, a perspective. Um, you know, I think that I think that the best education out there is communing with with our, our neighbors and people that we know or don't know. Um, I'll say that I am really, really, really passionate about relationships. I really enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy connecting and I enjoy hearing people's stories because in hearing from other people about what they value and their lived experience, I expand my own understanding about the human condition. And I think that a big part of where we are as a society is that we've been forced into silos. The pandemic has definitely done that. But there's a way in which it's very easy to stay in the silo of class, of our gender privilege, of our um, whatever type of privilege that we, we have uh, to kind of stay, stick around the people that we, we are very comfortable around. So I would just say that, you know, one important step is to disrupt that by considering ways to engage with people who have a different lived experience than you do, or even people who you may have access to but don't really know on an intimate level. Because by learning about other folks' walk and lived experience, uh, there's a way in which we, we all benefit. Um, I have a friend who just happens to be Muslim, and uh, you know I really count him as an amazing person in my life because I always often say that in knowing him, he made me a better Christian. And I think that's it's really powerful because there are many folks in my faith tradition who argue that we have to be very, very closed off from, from communing with people who have different faith practices. But for me, there's so much to learn from other people who may have a, a different approach to having the same end. We have the same goal. The same goal is treating people well, you know, honoring a, a, a higher power um, and doing good in the world. And there's a way that, you know, in, in, in exploring our friendship, we're able to strengthen each other through, through an understanding that's greater than our, than our own. So I would say it's just step one is just seeking opportunities to, to embrace difference and to connect with people who, who have a very different uh, outlook on life than you do. Um, beyond that, I think that there's a way in which uh, history can be really instructive. Um, you know, there's so many things that, that happen in cycles. So unfortunately, this moment that we're living in is nothing really new. Um, it's new because it's happening in 2020, uh, but there's a way in which we can learn from previous iterations of, of, uh, of racial injustice and pursuits aimed at equity to really inform how we got here and hopefully learn how to em empower future generations not to make the same mistakes that we've made to get us to this point. Your openness and embrace of what might be different, might even be you know, wrong as far as you're concerned, but your ability to really welcome that just speaks to your own groundedness. Elijah, it's really wonderful and it Thank is it's, it's not you know it's not super normal and certainly for someone who has um so early in your impact for the world i'm, I'm really i'm blown away by that um my friend you know it, it's it sounds you really do sound like you flow and you float and those are those are words that i i, I really resonate with because when you in those states of flow which is a really precious place what's been hard for you were there times that were hard? Were there events? What's been hard for you? 
You know, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, I'm an optimist, so I'm always going to say the glass is half full. And I was raised to be very tenacious in the sense that, you know, life is going to be hard, but it's up to us to fight and to do our part to make whatever uh, reality we're, we're hoping to pursue uh, just that. Um, but I'll say that for me, um, hardships have definitely come in the form of loss. Um, I lost my, I lost loved ones really early in life. My, my grandfather and, uh, almost a second mom, um, in early ages that really transformed the way I approach life. So there's a way in which in middle school, when kids are running around carefree and kind of with no care in the world, I was wrestling with, uh, my hero, my best friend, my grandfather, who I'm named after um, battling cancer and having to take care of him and his uh, impending death. And I think mortality being something uh, that you grapple with at such an early age stays with you. Um, I'll never forget um, being with him when, at the time I didn't know, but his, his, his time definitely uh, was, was, was drawing near as far as just his time on earth and him saying that he was afraid to die. And I was the one person that could kind of give him a sense of peace. And maybe that kind of led to my whole desire to, to, to attend divinity school to kind of, you know, offer that type of comfort, I'm not sure. But I think that early understanding of mortality, of, of, of life being something that's finite, um, has always informed um, a lot of what I do and almost been a burden at times. Um, and continues to be such as I kind of grapple with various forms of loss throughout my lifetime. Um, you know, I think that, I think that, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's never easy to have a, uh, a vision for your life that may not be popular. And I think, um, I think that there are many sacrifices that I may have made throughout my life, maybe spending more time in the library than not, um, <laughs> to, to just, um, have opportunities and, um, you know, it's never something that comes easy. Um, and, and, I, and I often acknowledge the fact that I feel like I've had a very privileged life in the sense that I had two very loving parents, an amazing community. I've never had to worry about, you know, going hungry a day in my life. So by no means do I ever, do I ever embrace this, this sense of hardship because despite what I've may have endured, people have had it far worse. Um, and I think that um, it has, it has uh, instead fueled my desire to give back because I understand that I have a, a great sense of uh, opportunity uh, to, to, to just share and to give and to offer a bit of what I've been given in my life um, by virtue of that. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in the spirit of the show, the whole say it skillfully part, and I would just say that you are a poster child for this, Elijah. Bravo. Um, is there a tough conversation that you have had or uh, see people having that I might be able to offer some perspective on? You know, it's interesting. And I hope this is not, um, not a, a segue for your show, but um, I was... I became emotional uh, recently seeing a photo of my two nieces. Uh, they're headed to school in, in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, they might be, let's see, three and five. And they're dressed in their school uniform, 
what they have on the mask. And I was moved because I've seen them, you know, grow up. But I was also emotional because of the fact that, wow, these two innocent <laughs> young ladies who I, I, I love to death are going to school in the midst of a pandemic. And I have no idea about how to talk to them about that or how to embrace the fact that I want to go visit, but how do I visit socially distanced in a way that doesn't allow for them to be put in harm? You know, that, that barrier of emotional um, of complexity for a young person, I think is challenging. But I think it also resonates with, uh, with my team. You know, I think that all of us in our respective roles are engaging with the, uh, the gravity of this moment. It's a moment in which we're, we're questioning a great deal of big questions around race, equity, history, all of the above, but also around distance, around, you know, not being proximate to those we love. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's a, it's a challenge to motivate ourselves, but also each other in times like this. So uh, I would say, though, I think that I think those two um, scenarios kind of work together in a way in which how we offer a sense of uh, clarity, understanding, or maybe even grace during this very challenging time. Well, that is the $10 million question that you've posed. And, you know, I think that you've modeled um, what I would say about that is the being there, not necessarily having answers or or knowing what to do um, and helping people. um, And they may not feel comfortable, but I would say give themselves permission to to not know um, and to ask for what people think that they need, um, the ability to, to have young people share what they think is going on for them, um, to, to work with what you then get, I think is a beginner's mindset that can be very useful for that. And uh, I can hear a bit of the struggle and, and a little bit of you know, pain in, in that this is the way it is and that's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's with us for a while, Elijah. So I think the, the putting out there how one feels, um, creating space for others to share how they feel, to ask for what people might need, but to know that we may not be able to, to, um, to do much about it, but that we care, but that we care. That, that, that's, that's amazing and very, uh, very useful. Uh, so thanks, Molly. Really appreciate that. I appreciate you. I uh, I do have a f- couple questions to wrap. One, one is, you know, you you did minor in leadership studies. Obviously, you're just uh, you're just standing tall in your shoes, and I'm I'm just very inspired by you. When you, you know, I, I think we have a lot of positive leadership. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I do think there's quite a crisis of leadership. Um, and you know, given that you're at the helm of this new um, opportunity. What do you think is needing to change about what it means to lead or to be a leader? Well, you know, you just mentioned a $10 million question. Um, I, I, uh, I have a lot of growth um, and um, I'm committed to, to becoming a better person each day. And it's not an easy um, commitment because it's, it, it comes with a great deal of, of pain and hard lessons. But I think the goal in life is to learn from lessons and to allow them to hopefully um, inform our future in a positive way. 
You know, I think I just have to go back to what I respect in the leaders that I have uh, come to know. And that is having a sense of grounding that's based in some kind of framework of values. Um, you know, I don't think that leaders should be popular <laughs> or, or should have a sense of um, always getting it right by the way of popular demand. But you, you want to be able to trust that the leaders you do know are making a decision that's based in some type of moral compass or value system that you can still respect, uh, despite not necessarily agreeing with them. Um, you know, there are so many people throughout history who have been political leaders, for example, and I would say that we may not have agreed with their um, ideologies, but you can still respect the office that they served in because of the level of groundedness that they at least exhibited through their actions. And, uh, and I think that that's something that's really important, just having that, uh, having that be something that we can look to um, despite, um, you know, any difference that might emerge. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I would normally ask you for your top takeaway, but I'm going to share mine and then I'm going to give you a different question. And I, this abundance that you and your father, abundance, enough success for everyone, make the world a better place for our passions really resonated um, loud and clear for me. So those are the things among many that I'm taking from you. And I would ask you to close, Elijah, what was it like for you to share your story with us today? I'll just say, Molly, um, I am profoundly grateful for this opportunity. Um, I, I'll say there are not many uh, opportunities uh, such as this to really uh, pause, to reflect, but more so to be affirmed by the value that you have seen in, in my journey and my story. Um, it's one that is, is hopefully still unfolding and one that I, um, you know, I, I may take for granted at times. So um, I, I think for me, um, it, it was a very, uh, it is a very humbling opportunity and one that I will treasure for, for some time to come. I, uh, I'm going to out Duke you to treasure it more because <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away. I am, uh, I'm filled with gratitude, my friend. And uh I am here for you. Your uh, journey is bright already, is only getting brighter. Anything that I may do to be of help, uh, you know how to find me. And I thank you, Elijah, for telling your story and being part of the solution. You take good care. Thank you very much. Wow. Let me wrap with my thought for the week as Elijah so wonderfully modeled for us. Take the opportunity to find your authentic voice and use it tell your story. And this is a wrap. I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show and amplify Elijah's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, 
more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 